Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, titled From the Prehistory of the Proud Boys, or Opera's Romantic Nationalism, Wagner's Tannhäuser and Masculinity, Dr. Mitchell Morris discusses the intersections of romantic opera and nationalism and their resonances for today. This discussion was recorded as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. Good morning to all of you. Nice to talk to y'all. I want to start by telling you a little bit about why I chose the title that I chose today. I chose it because if you recall the absolutely horrible, horrible incident in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, where uh, many people first discovered this right-wing organization, the Proud Boys, um, it was a remarkable experience from the point of view of scholars because of the abundance of medieval symbology that was being employed for propagandistic purposes. This caused our friends in the sort of study in, in medieval studies to get very, very serious indeed, because from their point of view, what they saw was their beloved topics of research being misunderstood and applied to um, situations that were absolutely abhorrent. So one of their tasks has been since then to say, wait a minute, you think you understand the Middle Ages, you do not understand the Middle Ages, if you think that this is what it was about. And I was particularly struck by this because in my own research, I have known for some time that the kind of Middle Ages that we work with is an inheritance less of, let's say, the 12th century and more of the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. When we think of typical medieval romantic tropes, we're actually thinking of part of the legacy of romantic historiography. And that itself requires a fair amount of unpacking. Uh, hence my title, From the Prehistory of Proud Boys. Because, in fact, a lot of the ideology and a lot of the sort of affect and a lot of the practices that they're actually dependent on are being pioneered in the late 18th and early early 19th centuries, although most of the people who were developing these ideas would have been really surprised at what happened to them. And with that, I include Wagner, who is an ambiguous figure all of the time. You can never slot him into simply one box because he's always trying to operate in several simultaneously. And we'll see how some of that actually manifests itself today. What I'd like to do is give you a little bit of intellectual history to frame my remarks on the music. What is happening at the beginning of the 19th century is that Germany, more or less, those German-speaking lands that are not in the possession of Austria and are not part of the Swiss Canton system, all of the rest of, of those countries are bits and pieces of what had been the Holy Roman Empire. In the words of the Austrian diplomat Metternich just a couple of decades later, not holy, not Roman, and certainly not an empire. Um, it was that very antiquated, creaky system of tiny little countries that was everybody in Europe's basic idea 
of what Germany was truly like. If you've ever seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the king of Bulgaria and all of that little sort of stuff with these little sort of postage stamp cracker box countries, that's the kind of Germany that you see portrayed, for instance, in the literary works of Madame de Stael in the beginning of the 19th century. People thought of all of that hokey kind of stuff that we still have at, you know, um, German themed amusement parks. So braids, dirndls, lederhosen, beer, Oktoberfest, etc, etc, etc. This was a topic of great frustration in Germany because it was really obvious by the beginning of the 19th century that with national union came power and an important kind of power. This is probably also the period where you start seeing an important distinction that some German intellectuals will make between the kind of culture they have and the kind of culture that the English and the French have. There will be this argument, a rather superficial one, but an important one that, well, you know, the French and the English, they're you know, very frivolous people. They're all very surfacy. They have civilization. They have civilization. But in order to realize the real depth of culture and to make it sort of in touch with profound spiritual forces, you have to have a deeper relationship with it. And that's what we Germans have. Whereas they are a bunch of sort of fashion wannabes who just sort of follow the latest thing, we don't have civilization in Germany. We have Kultur. We have the real thing. It's an amusing fact that the Russians will duplicate this exact structure over the course of the 19th century, where they will say, oh, like England and France and Germany, they're all these superficial Western countries. They've lost the soul that we Russians still possess. It's a way of kind of coping with being at the margins. And Germany in this period is most definitely in the margins. Germany does not have colonies, so Germany doesn't have darker people to exploit for financial gain. It's not one of the great empires. They're starting late on the nationalism game. It's in many, many ways a very powerful response to Napoleon, but it's more than that. And that's where I want to sort of head for a few minutes next. So of course, one of the things that's actually really easy for us in the US to forget, even in a place like California, which has had like long European uh, occupation, is we forget how much ancient detritus there can be kicking around in Europe. We forget how heavily, heavily settled for how very long it has been. So there are all kinds of mysterious objects from all kinds of pasts simply lying around. And like any objects of that sort, they start to accrete various kinds of legends. And the story of Tannhäuser is an artistic compilation of a number of different strands of these kinds of legends. If you do just simply some superficial work, you'll know that the story about the song contest in the Wachburg, which is what we're looking at now, is actually a different cycle originally from the story of this errant knight who started to take up with essentially a fairy queen. Because Frau Holda, or Venus, in the old stories, is really a variant of La, Del, La Belle Dame Sans Merci. It's part of that European tradition of the mortal who is abducted into the fairy realm where all kinds of things happen to him, most typically. 
So these are these stories that are going to be fused together, but not until the late, uh, the late 18th century. So if we figure out how this is working and how, what Wagner is responding to, we have to talk literature. Wagner is a really wonderful composer to work on, not least because he had so many aspirations towards so many different artistic media that there's lots and lots of really interesting and surprisingly odd stuff to talk about. In addition, Wagner was an autodidact, and autodidacts often end up in very interestingly quirky and peculiar kinds of combinations of things that people who were sort of trained in a more disciplined way might not have actually sort of thought of. So let's explore a little bit of that. And I want to give you three frameworks that I think matter, particularly for Wagner, and show up in Tannhäuser, but they will show up in The Ring, they'll show up in Meistersinger, they'll show up in Tristan, and they'll show up in Parsifal and in, in Lohengrin. A lot of his works tend to fall into either the Teutonic cycle, let's say, or this medievalist cycle. And they share lots of thematic material, even arguably some characters after all. So the first set of people that I wanna mention are the writers. Wagner, as it happened, was a great enthusiast of German romantic writing, both fiction and poetry, but particularly fiction of various sorts. And among the names that we have to keep in mind particularly are the author Ludwig Tieck, I'll come back to him in a minute, E.T.A. Hoffmann, and Wagner's, it's interesting, Wagner owed him a lot and liked to dismiss him a lot, Heinrich Heine. Tieck, we'll start with. Tieck was an interesting writer, not least because he was also heavily involved in theater. He had moved to the German city of Jena uh, at the very beginning of the 19th century, where he was working with the brothers August and I think it's Wilhelm, Wilhelm August and Wilhelm Schlegel sorry, Friedrich, who were important writers and intellectuals who were, um, those three, Tieck and the Schlegels, spearheaded the translation of Shakespeare into Germany. It was so important a translation product, project that, in fact, Germans kind of adopted Shakespeare as an honorary German writer. And he became absolutely central to German culture in this period, due largely to the efforts of people like Tieck and the Schlegels. E.T.A. Hoffmann, of course, was a jurist, but was also an extraordinarily important writer of various kinds of fantasy. Um, his works have influence that just continues to trickle down all the way through the 19th century. And Heinrich Heine, who was also trained in these intellectual traditions, ended up writing all sorts of wonderful poetry and satires and really marvelous and distinguished literary career. Wagner read all of these men very carefully. Wagner owes a lot to Heine. He certainly owes the plot of Dutchman to Heine. He owes things from Tannhäuser to Heine. Heine had been uh, converted to Protestantism from Judaism, and so of course he provided fertile ground for Wagner's bigotry. Now my sense of uh, Wagner's anti-Semitism is that it was highly situational. It was not so important to him if he needed to get something from you and he needed to extract your labor or money. 
if he owed you money or he was in debt to you in some way, he would use every vicious stereotype in the book to malign you and ruin your character and just sort of try to destroy you because he was such a deadbeat a deadbeat and a con man, and he would immediately sort of take advantage of, of European anti-Semitism in this way. But these writers matter for the kinds of things they're interested in. They're interested in the role of the imagination. They're interested in the constitution of individuality in this really very powerful way. It's in, certainly in writings like this that you see one of the archetypes of romantic stories, which is typically this, and this works out in a lot of operas. You have a community that is more or less ordinary, of regular life. Life. Let's say you have the huntsman in the community represented at the beginning of Weber's Der Freischutz. Into this world, a figure appears who is otherworldly. You may be sent a singing a song about this legendary figure and boom, he shows up. This figure is two things always. On the one hand, he's this figure, typically he, is this figure of great power, and attractiveness, but also danger. So he is an outsider who is quite possibly some sinister other, some sort of foreigner, some sort of racial other or class other or something like that. He's going to be, in a way, one of the descendants of Mozart's Monastatos, in fact. This person from somewhere else who is an agent of disorder. One of the big differences is if you look at the magic flute, it's clear that disorder is going to be put up for, put up with for the length of an aria, but that's pretty much it. But in Wagner, that principle of disorder and entropy, that principle of danger, that principle of disintegration, you want to keep it. You always want it there. You always want that temptation. If Wagner wants Elizabeth as the good girl and the saint, he also needs Venus because he has to have a bad girl along with the good. Part of it is Wagner's own ambivalence all the time that is not least direct, not, you know, among other things, directed at himself. Wagner was not very certain of his welcome almost all the time. There was something very parvenu about it. There was something possibly suspect about his birth and his ancestry. He pushed his way in as if he was going to be an insider, but he still had a lot of the bitternesses and resentments and hostility of an outsider. So he's constantly warring with himself across these boundaries of being included or excluded, of being good in a way and being an outlaw in another way. And all of these things are actually inheritances from this kind of romantic way of thinking about things. Writers also tended to merge with scholars. We have the Schlegels, who, as I've already mentioned, were not simply writing their own things. They were translating and researching Shakespeare. We have their friend Novalis, who is a crucial poet and writer who matters enormously to Wagner. In fact, a lot of the metaphysics of light and dark and day and night 
that you see in Tristan are almost direct borrowings from Novalis's writing, in fact. And that's another example of this kind of ambivalence because I've said in this particular series before, and I tell my undergraduates this, this is not a piece, Tristan is not a piece I want you to mention that your parents are, be, are don't tell your parents that I'm teaching this piece to you because it is essentially a long auto asphyxiation mash note. It's really actually about suicide as much as it's about lust. And it's advocating it. You know, I think that you really have to look at it as it's a really serious claim that the best orgasm is the one that kills you. And it comes from this sort of amplification of what Novalis is doing. But writers aren't the only people. When I say writers and scholars, that's a hinge point to something that was culturally absolutely crucial and mattered enormously to Wagner as well. And that is the thing that we call philology. Now, philology nowadays is likely to be imagined as something fairly close to what we call historical linguistics. And to some extent, that's not unfair. Certainly, the idea of doing comparative studies in grammar and phonology uh, and so on was central to how this worked, but philology was more than that. We conventionally date the, the sort of creation of this particular kind of philology to the 1780s, when the distinguished British jurist Sir William Jones had been sent by uh, the English government to help make some sense of legal codes in the British-dominated uh, colony of India. So what Jones decided to do, he was an amazing man. He was this terrifying polyglot who I think spoke something like 23 languages. What Jones decided he would do is he would adapt Hindu law to make it the customary law of the land. So Hindus would be judged by Hindu law Muslims would be judged by Muslim law, and his job was to create the codes and to reconcile them. That meant he had to learn Sanskrit. When he began to study Sanskrit, he noticed some amazing things, and you may have actually run across this before. The Latin word for father is pater. The, Latin, uh, the Greek word for father is pretty close to it, and the Latin word for, sorry, the Sanskrit word for father is pitar. In fact, there are huge numbers of cognates in terms of vocabulary, in terms of grammar, and in a very famous essay that he delivered to the um, Asiatic Society in Calcutta, he observed that there were so many similarities between Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit that the only way to explain it was to assume that there had been a language that had existed before that was the parent of Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. This moment is really crucial because it does mark the birth of the idea of what's going to eventually be called Indo-European as a language family. But before it's Indo-European, it has another stage. In the early 19th century, it's called Indo-Germanic or Indo-Germanish because the people who are most interested in making progress on this work are in fact German scholars. And it does several things for them. The first thing they do is they demonstrate that the Teutonic languages, that Germanic, is part of this larger family as well. And that, in fact, most European languages are related in this complex way. 
but it also means that you can take current languages and through careful comparison, you can get to earlier versions of the language. That is to say, even in the absence of written records, you can seemingly learn something about what used to be spoken. And it's not just you can learn how the grammar worked and how the pronunciation worked, you can also learn things about the culture from the vocabulary that survives. Thus, there's going to be this whole industry of trying to reconstruct the primitive Indo-Europeans. We know that according to some scholars, they had three classes. They had the warriors, the priests, and the herdsmen. We know that they thought in threes a lot. We know that they had various deities. We know that they had horses. We know, and so on and so on. The great philologist August Schleicher, who is one of the people chiefly responsible for the development of Indo-Germanish. And this text is his first attempt to write his reconstruction of Indo-European or Indo-Germanish. And what he decided to do is write a little fairy tale. I'll read you a very rough approximation of it. This is The Sheep and the Horse. A sheep that had, that had some wool saw a horse who was actually tugging a man along. And the sheep said, oh, I really feel sorry for you that you have to actually lug him everywhere. And then the horse replied, well, I see you. And, you know, it's a shame you're going to lose all your fur. Um, all your wool is going to be gone to, to clothe the man. So then the sheep ran away. So that's essentially the story, which is supposed to embody not only the vocabulary that can be commonly reconstructed, for Indo-Germanish, but also the kind of life that Schleicher imagined they lived as essentially a nomadic herding society with wheel very early, probably ferocious conquerors who took over Europe, and so on and so on. So this kind of image, this kind of, it's really like from the prehistory of Conan the Barbarian in a certain way, because these notions of migrations of ancient peoples and of all these warrior cultures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's going to be fertile food for all kinds of popular fiction all the way through the rest of the 19th century and way far into the 20th century. There are still novels of this kind of stuff being written right now. So it's a really powerful and compelling set of images for a lot of people. This idea becomes especially important for Germans because you really do have a better chance of getting some kind of primitive Teutonic culture out of your reconstructive work. And so this idea of coming up with a primitive German past is really important. For one thing, it means that we don't have to depend on the Latins and the Greeks anymore. They have their classical culture. They have their vast inheritance of venerable traditions. Well, we Germans have it too. It just wasn't written down, but we've now recovered it. And it's no accident that this aspect of Reconstruction appeals to Wagner in particular. He could comfortably read Middle High German in his library. He had a copy of the Icelandic Eddas, which is one of the major sources for Norse mythology nowadays. He was 
a trying as best he could for an autodidact to keep up with what was going on in scholarly terms. So when he's thinking about his operas, he's also trying to borrow the verisimilitude that comes from philology as well and sort of importing it into the very substance of his pieces, as we will actually see. Also among the philologists are the brothers Grimm, and this is significant as well because we often don't understand why they made those very famous and wonderful collections of fairy tales. You have to understand that in the context of this time, it was considered a real possibility that what a fairy tale really is, is a decayed myth. It started, and maybe it was about Wotan, maybe it was about, um, you know, Donna or Fricka or one of those deities that shows up in the ring. By now, it's worn away. And instead of deities, they're supernatural figures of some sort. Instead of the goddess Venus, she's really a demon living in a cave somewhere in a German hill. So when you collect children's stories and household tales and things like that, you're collecting material that can help you get back to a deeper, richer, more primitive past. It's not just for amusement value, and if you've read the original Grimm, they are not always very amusing. I mean, I don't know. I don't think Disney included the scene where the queen goes to Snow White's wedding and she's strapped into iron hot shoes and made to dance till she falls down dead. That doesn't really sound like the sort of thing we expect in children's stories, although German children's stories in the 19th century can be blood-curdling. But it's this idea that it goes back even further that really matters, because that's what Wagner is doing almost literally with the plot of Tannhäuser. He's taking old stories, mixing them and combining together in an almost sort of like acting like he is a force of history, pulling them into a single tale. He's letting things wear away and sort of, it's almost like creating your own palimpsest. If you've ever seen, some people do this as a, po as a poetic technique. They'll write something out and then they'll just sort of at random erase bits of it. So there's always stuff a little bit missing. And that sort of charge that you get from not being finished, from being fragmentary, is part of the pleasure of it. Last but not least in this giant rogues gallery of figures that I want to include, I want to talk for a moment about philosophers. It is an interesting thing that Germany was not so big in this period. It was possible for an awful lot of people to be acquainted and there is no better example than in the world of philosophers. So J.G. Fichte was instrumental in developing a kind of approach to Kantian philosophy that leads into a very powerful philosophical tradition in the 19th century we call idealism. Fichte taught Schilling. Schilling was a roommate with Novalis, the poet I mentioned earlier, as well as Hegel. All these people were really complicatedly entangled in social networks. And in fact, that's one of the ways they got a lot of work done for themselves. On the outside of this core of philosophers was Arthur Schopenhauer, who had known Goethe 
loosely. Basically, Schopenhauer's situation was he wanted to sort of break into the inner circle and never was able to succeed for multiple reasons. Part of it was his background was different. His father was a businessman and, and Schopenhauer was brought up to be fluent in French, English, and German to be trained to be an international businessman, basically. He was named Arthur because it spelled the same in French, German, and English. And his English was quite good, which is probably why his German is better than most of his peers. His mother, with whom he did not get along after his father died, his mother became a celebrated romantic novelist who was very, very popular and who knew Goethe really well and lived in Weimar. But Schopenhauer never really succeeded in, I mean, he met Goethe and had some connection with Goethe, but he never broke into philosophical circles and he did a very, very stupid thing that got him in terrible trouble. In this period, professors were paid according to enrollment. I mean, we still are in a certain way, but you got paid by how many people enrolled for your course. So Schopenhauer goes to Berlin when Hegel is at his most famous and decides to schedule his lectures at the same time that Hegel has his. So nobody goes. And he essentially retires to Frankfurt in humiliation, and he just sort of becomes a bitter old misanthrope. And only later in his life do people like Wagner discover his work and give him an old age reputation, in fact. This we'll come back to in just a little bit. So all of these people provide this really intense context for thinking about what Wagner's doing. He's not just being frivolous about things. What he's doing is he's really trying to work out opera as a kind of cultural equal in this project of creating a German culture that doesn't yet exist in very powerful ways. Now, the reason I call it Proud Boys is because masculinity turns out to be absolutely central to this. And Wagner's career will be filled with various kinds of ambivalences. On the one hand, let's actually get there by talking for a minute about Parsifal. Parsifal, his last opera, represents a really wonderful condensation of concerns that are already being developed in Tannhäuser. For one thing, you've got the notion of a brotherhood, of a homosocial all-male environment that depend on each other for a kind of agonistic constitution of identity. They're a group, a band of brothers who are going to struggle somehow. That's just like the Knights of the Grail. That is, in a way, like the Minnesingers in Tannhäuser, who are going to be having a contest. The, so the fact that it's a song contest doesn't change that kind of fundamentally competitive athleticism that's really central to how men together are creating some kind of hierarchy and group identity at the same time. So there's that side of it. But at the same time, if you look at Parsifal, while there are all these grail knights at the castle, there's this mysterious demonic woman who happens to be Jewish, Kundry is a Jew, and can move between the realm of all these nice Christian boys and these sinister Muslims who have too much to do with harem girls. And she doesn't disappear. Yes, it looks at the, like at the end of the opera that she's sort of finally forgiven and she can die and she goes away. But does she really? Does the force of her personality still linger? 
probably. Just as in Tannhäuser, Elizabeth nominally wins at the end because Tannhäuser calls on her and he gets forgiven, the staff bursts into, into bloom, and Venus doesn't actually get to bring him back. But it's not actually necessarily as obvious as all that somehow. And that tension between a bad girl and your brothers is going to be a really powerful dramatic tension for Wagner. You'll see aspects of it showing up in Lohengrin. You see a kind of weird submerged aspect of it popping up in Act 1 and in Act 3 of Tristan and so on. You'll see these kinds of things really developed and it has an important effect musically. And that's where I want to take us for this last segment. I want to start with something really obvious, and that is to talk about the, the prelude. Now, of course, Wagner wrote the beginning of his opera after most of it was done, but famously, Tannhäuser was in some sense never finished. Even at the end of his life, Wagner was dissatisfied with it. Part of it was the trauma of the Paris Tannhäuser, which wasn't so much, of course, about the music as it was about politics and the preferences of the jockey club in, in France. They wanted to see their mistress's legs on stage, but they didn't want to interrupt their dinner patterns. So having a ballet at the beginning of Act One was just not all right. The fact that Princess Matilda, I think it was, had actually recommended the piece made it even worse if you were a very Franco-nationalist about things. But be that as it may, Wagner was not content with how it worked. That was just an important aspect of it. But the music of the prelude is a wonderful encapsulation of this fundamental problem of good girls and bad girls. Though the opening chorus, it's the Pilgrim's Chorus, of course, but it's more than just a Pilgrim's Chorus. For one thing, as we listen, let me point out, it's actually in a meter that is not a march. It ought to be a march if it's Pilgrim's. We have two feet, but it's in a compound triple meter. That is to say, it's like a big slow waltz with three beats to every beat. And that kind of thing gives it a kind of swing that actually evokes knights riding as much as it does pilgrims walking. It is balanced so that it is extremely symmetrical. What I mean is that if you start counting, if you use your conducting patterns, you're just going womp, 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 and just counting in three, you will notice a group of 16 a group of 16. In fact, regularity is really central to how that opening strain works. It needs to be regular because it is controlled. It is a disciplined and orderly thing. It's a way of keeping together in time. By contrast, the Venusberg music is this spastic orgy of materials that will fall into patterns but is willing to break them both harmonically as well as rhythmically in really important ways. It is music that is in 19th century terms and even in most 20th century terms coded as feminine. If the opening theme is essentially a kind of representation of masculinity, which it is, 
The second theme is devious, complicatedly feminine in almost an Art Nouveau-ish kind of way. It's like the snaky hair of Salome and a Beardsley illustration. So I'm gonna pull this up. And let's start by just listening to the opening of the overture. It matters that it's bald horns, the ventilferno, it's a very German choice. A nice four-part choral arrangement. It sounds like it may as well be a Bach chorale. Okay, very, very grand indeed, and very, very regular. That matters hugely in this because it's balanced. Even in the moments when you've got that chromaticism showing up in the second strain, which gives you this kind of internal kind of poignancy going on. It's clearly some representation of some unresolved feelings that are really happening in this kind of quasi-character that's the overture, even in those cases, it's brought back into the fold. It doesn't seem to be ready to lose control yet. And that's really important because you're saving the dramatic effect of loss of control for the Venusberg music, which we're gonna go ahead and skip towards now. We'll just start in the middle of it.
Now that is in these terms, exceedingly wild-eyed. That's really, it's a mess if you're thinking in terms of harmony in the 1840s and the 1850s. Part of it is that you've got this huge number of sequences that are just going on and on and on and lots of chromaticism just going, yeah, 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 yeah. And this whole sort of gesture of the yeah, 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 yeah. It's actually rather dissonant. It's rather dissonant, it's unbalanced, it's not stopping, it doesn't want to finish. We're not aiming at a particular place, we're wandering, in fact. And it's that wandering that's part of what's so shocking in connection, with, in contrast to the opening segment. In the opening segment, everything is ruly. It's where it needs to be. In this, you never know what's going to happen next. It's, in fact, that kind of an orgiastic experience. Everything seems really kind of aleatory. Everything seems, well, we could do almost anything with this next gesture. You never know. And that's really crucial because that's also the origin of Tannhäuser's charisma as a singer. Note that what happens after this is when he's trying to win his freedom from Venus, he always sort of starts as if he's singing a song of praise to her, but then he keeps turning it back to let me go. He keeps turning it back to a very particular repetition. And that balance between repetition and structure and this kind of improvisatory quality is part of what's going to mark him as a character. It's also part of what makes the song contest of Act Two work so effectively. I don't really think that I can go into it very much, but I want to explain a couple of things for you to be prepared to listen to. The song contest is in a regular, perfectly great sort of structure of the kind that we're used to. There will be three numbers. There will be um, the least interesting number, the middle number, and then there will be the climactic number. The way that it's set up is that the first song, which is given to Walter von der Vogelweide, who's actually a historical figure, is really simple. It's basically closer to what an actual menisong would be than anything else you're gonna hear in the opera. It is a monophonic line, a singer with a harp, and that's it. The harp itself doesn't provide any counter melodies. It provides little tiny harmonic interjections. It's only with the second song by this uh, singer named, this minnesinger named Bitterholf, Bitterholf, that things start to get more complicated, but they only get more complicated because Tannhäuser has already interrupted. He is not really good about keeping waiting his turn to, to speak. And in fact, he keeps inserting himself into the contest in ways that are obviously making everyone in the room progressively less and less easy until he bursts out with music that we recognize instantly from the orgy earlier. It actually is the sonic proof of where he's been. Because as you remember, at the end of act one, he's really cagey about where he's been all this time. Where have you been, Heinrich? We haven't seen you in forever. Oh, I've been around. I've been here and there. Well, no, he's actually been consorting with a demon other. It's like a Nazi having, having an affair with a woman of color or something like that. It's that kind of contamination of mortal space, of German space, with the supernatural, with this kind of otherness, which is clearly not gone. 
it has left a mark. It's still present. And that's what's really, really crucial. And what's weird about Wagner is he doesn't actually ever want to lose the stain. He wants to preserve it. This is one of the fundamental reasons when all is said and done that Wagner gives us such an ambiguous legacy because he's perfectly happy to participate, for instance, in scapegoating and persecuting structures, but he's never willing to imagine that that's the end of the story. There's always some weird space in which it can come back at any moment. And that constant presence is more important to him, arguably, than ever trying to get rid of it. So it's with these kinds of things that you can already sort of see its relevance to the kinds of very, very conservative, racially inflected identity formations that we have to operate with now. They can find a Wagner for themselves. The weird thing about it is we can find a Wagner to resist that very Wagner within his own works. Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.